You're listening to Autumn on the Air, the weekly podcast that brings you conversations about the impact of research commercialization and the people who make it happen. Join us for interviews with patent and licensing professionals, innovators, entrepreneurs, and tech transfer leaders on the issues and trends that matter most. Keep listening for an inside track on the people, IP policies, and politics changing our world. Welcome to Autumn on the Air. In 2021, the Medical Research Council, in collaboration with LifeArc and support from the Biotechnology and Biological Sciences Research Council, invested 18 million pounds to establish a network of cutting-edge gene therapy innovation hubs in the UK. These hubs aim to advance the clinical development of new genetic treatments and have the potential to transform care for millions of patients, including those with rare and life-threatening genetic diseases. Today, we'll be exploring the challenges of building a global hub for advanced therapies, and joining us as a guest is Angie Miller. Angie is a senior business manager in the tech transfer team at LifeArc, where she has dedicated over 19 years to working with early-stage translational research. With a profound understanding of intellectual property, contract management, licensing, and business development of healthcare technologies, Angie plays a pivotal role in identifying, cultivating, funding, and commercializing early-stage healthcare technologies with a particular focus on rare diseases and advanced therapies. In addition to her role at LifeArc, Angie serves as the skills lead for the recently launched innovation hubs for gene therapies. She collaborates closely with the hubs to address the identified skills needs in the advanced therapy sector. Angie's expertise and leadership extend beyond her work at LifeArc. She also serves on the board of directors for Autumn, the Alliance of Technology Transfer Practitioners, ASTP, Certified Licensing Professionals, and is a member of the Bioindustry Association Cell and Gene Therapy Advisory Committee and the Autumn Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Committee. Welcome, Angie. I'm so excited to have you here on the air. Thanks, Lisa. I'm glad to be here, too. Well, we're going to talk today about the world of advanced therapies. And so I'm really excited to have you here. And I was hoping we could get things started by you painting us a picture of the potential of these therapies and what they hold for transforming healthcare. What advancements and breakthroughs do you foresee in this field? First, I mean, I must say that it's such an exciting area and it's it's lovely to see the buzz come around again because the thing is, it was the promise that, you know, the advanced therapies could offer why I, I studied and took a, a PhD in, in addressing, you know, cancer, rare cancers that could be treated using gene therapy approaches. The excitement, I think, now is because there is true promise. You know, cell and gene therapies are revolutionizing how we approach and treat a wide range of diseases that currently have very poor or no effective intervention. It's, you know, it's basically with improved knowledge and techniques, the the challenges that existed before when it came around um, have been overcome. So this is really where we're seeing treatments that basically would not exist like 10, 15 years ago, 
they are actually going through clinical trials and, and they're on the market so they can treat um, con these conditions. I think for me, the excitement is not just the promise of curing diseases that previously wouldn't be treatable. It's the fact that, you know, it's it's rare conditions as well. So conditions that people wouldn't really know about or look at. Um, for me, the excitement also is that the fact that by intervening really early, some of these diseases can be wiped out completely. So the way we look at, you know, or when we diagnose anything, the approach will be completely different. Absolutely. And I think Novartis and some others are some good examples of that. They have these treatments now, and I forget which disease it is where a single or two injections are enough to treat a disease. And um, at, for a patient, that's, you know, tremendous. It's um, just revolutionary. Whereas, like you said, 10, 15 years ago, there were no options for any type of treatment. Yeah. And, you know, for children, because a lot of these conditions are, affect children. So the thing is, you know, before the prognosis, uh, before the age of five was that these children would not survive. By getting in early with a lot of these conditions, it, it means that they can have a long and fulfilling life. So it's early days, but it's it's a true promise rather than something that possibly is in sight. We can see we can see where this is happening. Yeah, it's such an exciting time. And, you know, your role at LifeArc involves identifying, funding and commercializing early stage healthcare technologies, particularly those focusing on the rare diseases that we've been talking about and these advanced therapies. Can you share some of the unique challenges you face when it comes to bringing these groundbreaking therapies to market? There are many challenges that we face with um, rare and advanced therapies. But one of the first challenges is funding. There's great research taking place globally. The issue is when these projects have to compete with projects that really can um, treat or diagnose a common indication. So the market is bigger. Um, advanced therapies, unfortunately, they're expensive. So the purse is bigger. The ask is bigger. So it's very difficult for a translational researcher in the advanced therapy space, and then again, dealing with a rare condition to actually get funding to progress the technologies further. Um, one of the other issues, even if they do get funding, is the fact that depending on the type of technology, if it's going to be in some sort of commercial model, for example, um, a commercial vehicle, for example, a spin-out company um, investment, it faces the same challenge. The advanced therapies, it's almost as though the promise of what they offer goes against them with the existing business model. These therapies with one or two treatments, as you mentioned before, can cure an indication. The business model is set up to deal with an indication that requires repeated treatment over years. So the existing business model doesn't sit well with these indications. So that's something that needs to change. And then one of the last things that I'm gonna mention with the advanced therapies is the ability to scale up the complex manufacturing process to produce sufficient medicine to treat everyone. This is gonna be a challenge that we can see it already. And it's, it's one of the things that the innovation hubs were dealing with for early small scale um, scale up of, of um, products. But the thing is, when we the more gene therapies that we have, we're going to have to find a way that we can produce sufficient amounts. 
and also that we can get the cost down so everyone can actually have it. And again, I think a topic that's near and dear to our hearts is inclusion. And and how do you include the rest of the world in making these therapies available to them, particularly maybe in countries where they don't have the infrastructure or even maybe the um, skill set to be able to produce these types of, of drugs. It's going to be really interesting to see that how that that plays out as well. Yeah, I, it's this again, you know, there are ways that we can. And I think with time, we can reduce the cost through manufacture and, and new, new novel ways of actually um, scaling up distribution. But this is a real problem with regards to health equity to ensure that everyone has access to these treatments when they are there. And it's 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 wrong that one part of the world really we can treat and cure certain diseases where others, you know, they are going to be suffering. Yeah, exactly. And it may not even be, you know, manufacturing challenges. It might even be transport challenges because a lot of these therapies yes. have to be transported at extremely low temperatures and getting them to certain yes. locations, and especially given that our planet seems to be on fire at the moment, um, is going to be uh, uh, another challenge that will have to be uh, faced in the future as well. Exactly. So, Angie, I wanted to ask you, when it comes to building a global hub for advanced therapies, what are some of the primary challenges you face in terms of attracting and retaining top talent, not only with respect to researchers, but also with respect to industry professionals? Yeah, again, another real challenge that we're having and we face and we're seeing the full extent of it, particularly now in the UK, because despite great research taking um, place everywhere and across the sectors um, you really have expertise that can be used in the advanced therapy space or similar areas what we're finding is that there's a real shortage there's a real shortage of skills so because of that it means that there's a limited recruitment pool that's shared by all the sectors whether you're in research or whether you're in industry a recent report forecasted that we need to have an increase of more than 115%. Um, this is just in the UK alone to meet the demand of the growing sector. It's because the sector is growing continuously and there's a shortage and we're not having that pipeline of expertise coming through. In the UK, it, this has been exacerbated by the fact that, you know, we've had Brexit and Brexit has meant that we've lost a lot of our skilled personnel. But when I speak to colleagues globally, this is a challenge that they're finding anyway. Um, it's it's specialised skills. Um, it is industry and academia. And unfortunately, because there's a small pool that's being used, there are inflated um, salaries, packages, rapid turnover. And in some cases, you're, you're losing talent um, maybe to another geographical area because the salaries can be better and also the living the living um, situations are, are more attractive for someone who has a family as well. So it, it does mean that there's a real problem. Speaking to others and a lot of the work that we've done through the hubs and, and with some of the other stakeholders, we were looking at, OK, how can we ensure that there's a pipeline of skills going into the sector? Um, Obviously, as a STEM ambassador, one of the things is to really promote STEM in from an early age school. But I think it's also to showcase exactly what are the professions within the advanced therapy space, because they're broad and wide. Not everyone 
is going to go to university. There are other ways, for example, in the UK, um, apprenticeships are now something that we are promoting and recognising that this is attractive and some excel through this way of learning where you have more experience. T-levels, which replace the A-levels in the UK, but it's, it's also in exposing those who have an interest in STEM to not only what the prospects are, but giving them a taste of practical experience. So what during their degrees, ensure that they have that, those in the sector to retain those in the sector. I think it's it's ensuring that they are constantly, there's a culture where they feel as though they're contributing and they're valued, ensuring that there's um, regular skills updates, so training. It's ensuring that training that really does align with them working so that Unfortunately, it's not going to be where it's taken away the resources because this is one of the limitations in, in having that. But it's also ensuring that, you know, they can see where they can stay in that sector, but also progress in their careers. It's I think it's going to be constantly working with others. It's not one person dealing with this. It's going to be a wide range. Um, but it's also ensuring that people recognize what they can do, the difference that they can make. I'm lucky enough that my background is advanced therapies and I work with innovation hubs, but it's, I also work with skills and I also work with technology transfer. That intersection is rare to have the mixture of skills and actually dealing with that. And it's it's really showing people that they can navigate, they can pivot. There's nothing wrong in doing that. I love learning. And that's, that's how I got into this and I follow my passions. It's really ensuring that others find that attraction and realize that there's a lot that they can do. But we also need, they can have huge impact because the thing is we need the skills there to deliver. It's not much point we have these amazing potential cures coming through and we don't have the workforce to, to actually get them there to the patient. Has the UK government recognized this problem and are they doing anything about it? Yes, and luckily um, it is where the innovation hubs the investment to actually set up the hubs is a partnership between LIFARC and two government agencies. So it's the MRC, the Medical Research Council, and the BBSRC. And it is where we recognise that there was a real need. This was in response to a request um, to actually fill this gap, to have small-scale manufacture, to ensure that advanced therapies could get from the lab, really scale up, and see and do that preclinical work and then be able to be manufactured at scale by a large scale manufacturer. And this is where the government recognized there was a need as well, because we can't keep up with the, the, the pace of new innovations that are coming through. So one is manufacturing, that was a bottleneck. It's been addressed by having the hubs and then there's a lot of activity happening globally to try and address this because this is a problem worldwide. But the thing is also there are general um, aspects that the hubs are three main sets. But the thing is, it is where there's a hub network and this is right across all the stakeholders working in the sector, really addressing some of the problems that everyone is having. And this will be some of the things that will really ensure that, you know, you have that great technology. It can be manufactured at scale smoothly. It is where you can, the logistics to actually move it to where it needs to be, also the conditions. But it's, it's and then even the regulators and, and really the, the agencies that deal with pricing and reimbursement. So it's, it's ensuring that 
all parties are really have a shared goal. Yeah, it cuts across a broad and wide spectrum of, you know, collaborators and partners and organizations and skill sets like you've been talking and you know trying to create these global hubs like you're you're working on there with LifeArp, you know, obviously those collaborations and partnerships are important. You just mentioned that. And, you know, what are some of the challenges you encounter in fostering collaboration when you're talking about, you know, life arc, you're talking about industry, you're talking about government entities and regulators and other organizations. It's just, like we said, a broad group of uh, technology space and, and organizations. You know, how do you do that in this space? It's, it's not easy, but as, you know, through LifeArc and, and even my career before LifeArc, collaboration was key. All the searches, this is something we do. When you're talking about different stakeholders, you have different drivers. I do think you have to have a certain level of trust right from the outset. That shared goal in ensuring that we get great academic derived technologies to the patient, it's everyone has to share that. So, you know, Okay, you're going to have different drivers. We're we're talking about industry. We're talking about academia. We're talking about service providers. We're talking about government, and then charities like LifeArc, where it's it's really where for us it's impact, patient impact. It's it's the key drivers. Once you have that, and everyone is working together, it does make a difference because you realize exactly what the drivers of others are, the limitations where you rely on each other. As we know, translational research and innovation, it's it's a tag, it's a tag sport. It's not one person taking it all the way. The academic researcher very early on is a key crucial role, but their role is always important, but it does change hands when you get to the more advanced stages where you're going to be clinical trials. You're going to have clinical expertise coming in, the regulatory bodies. For government, this is where you really do form the infrastructure and you can have the policies, you can have the drives regarding, for example, whatever, um, in this case, um, it could be the UK, ensuring that the UK can deliver to be one of the players globally in the advanced therapy space. But also, you know, you also recognise shared aspects, like we mentioned before, skills. This is across the sectors. All sectors are challenged with this. And it's from those developing the research, those that are helping to innovate it, and then those who have to deliver it. So, you know, the medical and clinical expertise required for that. It all the shortage is there right across the board. So with everyone working together and sharing that goal, it does mean that you can achieve um, amazing things. And it really is where you're not, fighting against each other because you realize that by your partner or your collaborator succeeding, you will be able to succeed as well. Because the thing is, as I mentioned, this tag team aspect to to innovation. Exactly. And and part of the keys to that success is going to be dealing with regulatory bodies. And you mentioned that before in regulatory agencies. And, and you know, um, I know in the U.S. we have our challenges with FDA. And, you know, I think for regulatory bodies, it, it's going to be challenging when it comes to approving these innovative therapies. So what thoughts do you have on navigating the regulatory landscape to overcome these challenges when it comes to developing and commercializing these innovative therapies on a global scale? Yeah, the regulatory landscape, because when you're talking about therapies, 
it's not going to be one territory, it's global. It's exceptionally complex. It's complex in one territory by itself. But the thing is, the fact that you need to really ensure that the world can be treated by this, it really is difficult to navigate. The We have a lot of, we have a really keep track of all regulatory developments as much as possible. We recognize that our knowledge is limited because this is expertise that you need to bring in with all the projects that LifeArt support, but also through the innovation hubs as well. We ensure and we promote early dialogue with the regulators. And this is to ensure that you're not trying to backfill. It's very expensive to do that. It's difficult to develop technology in the first place. You want to ensure that you are on that path and you have a clear and feasible path to the patient. So that means understanding exactly what's required preclinical and you know or can anticipate roughly what's going to happen clinical. But the thing is, it's very clear and and it's set. So you've spoken to the regulators and they've told you definitely you're on the right path. We will want to see X, Y, Z. One of the issues that does cause a problem is when you are crossing territories. The good thing is that the regulators realize that this is a challenge as well, because they are trying to keep up with innovation. But also, you know, their aim is the same as everyone else, to ensure definitely that this is safe and that it's going to deliver what it says it's going to. So the good thing is the regulators are talking to each other. And it is where you know, any any development or any change is widely disclosed. So we keep track of that. We ensure that there's early dialogue. And this is part of the development pathway. For the hubs, it's the same thing. It's ensuring that, you know, they're set up everything that they can do to support a project because it's not only just manufacturing at scale. It's also ensuring the resources that are available, but in, in making sure that going from, you know, lab grade to GMP, good manufacturing practice, it's really where it is within the actual regulations and requirements and standards that are expected. Yeah. And that early dialogue with a regulatory authority is just so important because it, like you mentioned, it's extremely expensive to commercialize this technology and you need to make sure you get that buy-in from that regulatory authority because if you wait too long, um, you're going to have to pivot and it's going to be a very expensive pivot. Yeah. And it's it's often when you talk to everyone who in the advanced therapy space, you know, they're complaining about the, the, the waiting time to actually speak to a regulator. Yes, that does exist. The regulators have the regulatory agencies are going through their own transition. And it is where there is waiting time, but you have to. I mean, it's it's not worth even trying to bypass and second guess. But this is particularly important for um, disruptive technologies where there is no benchmarking or comparing because the thing is there are so many things unknown. And in the advanced therapy space, this is a lot is unknown. So it's it's really ensuring that, yes, you have that dialogue. You speak to whoever, you know, you can have early discussions when before you even get to the preclinical stage. And then it's it's trying to ensure that within your development plan, you have another dialogue at some point to, to check again. And it, it's it's valuable. It increases the value of what you're doing. But also it just I think everyone it provides the confidence that 
whatever they're supporting is really going to get through and it has every every chance of success. And keeping on the theme of expensive and complex, let's talk about IP um, because that is a very challenging aspect of building a global hub. How do you navigate IP challenges such as conflicting or dominating patents or protecting proprietary knowledge when you collaborate with multiple entities within the hub? I think it's always, IP is always going to be a challenge. And very early, it's something where, you know, as a researcher, your focus is on the science. So you're not thinking it's usually the technology transfer division or, or office that is really thinking about, okay, the IP, when we're going to file. Most of the work that we're dealing with now is, is past that, that validation stage. So if there, if nothing has been filed, the plan is that at some point it's going to be filed. For us, what we advise a lot on the strategy in ensuring that your IP not only is in place, but you realize if you are going to need to get access through license to get your technology to market. And this is quite common in the advanced therapy space with a lot of the platforms that are there. I think it's really ensuring that you know what's happening. And if you can have dialogue or you can ensure that basically it's it, it's feasible to happen, it's that's one of the important things. And the reality is that if someone is has picked you to the post, it is where what you have is still valuable, but it's not going to be, it's not going to be that number one treatment unless something else happens. So what we usually do very early, as as well as the, the path to ensure that you're within regulation, everything is in line, is really having a strategy that is reviewed regularly. The data that's coming in have close dialogue, but we know also with researchers, there is that drive to publish. There's a new understanding when you're dealing with translational research, and particularly with something that is, you know, you're halfway there. With rare indications, you can get an expedited route to, to, to the patient. So it's really realizing that when you publish, you will have something fantastic, but it, it it's a, you definitely have to work with the technology transfer office to ensure that you can also get that technology to, to the patient. So with the strategy, it's ensuring with multiple stakeholders, it's, it's really cards on the table, what you're bringing, what you're bringing to the actual collaboration or partnership, but also recognizing what's going to be developed and the steps that are required to move it forward and who's going to do that. But also it's the cost involved it's being realistic, for example, with regards to ownership. This is a whole, we could have a whole podcast. We could <laughs> go on for eons on ownership. Oof. Yep. But I think it's transparency with regards to the value of the IP and the fact that it's not one IP source that's going to lead to that product. It's going to be multiple. And, you know, it's a long, expensive route to get any sort of innovation to the patient. So the players involved need to be realistic in what the expectations are, what they're going to have in return, but also the fact that you're going to have to support the IP going through. With multiple parties, it's it's really just ensuring that there are sufficient agreements as well, providing clarity, because there is amnesia sometimes when things get <laughs> increase in value. Yeah, <laughs> you don't want to have to deal with that. Amazing the amnesia that happens and people seem to 
forget about what happened in the past. I've run across that many times, like I'm sure you have as well. It's a selective memory or amnesia, whatever you want to call it. Uh, yeah, IP is always complex in these situations and, and royalty stacking makes it very expensive. And, and so, like you said, having a strategy very early on and but also keeping on that strategy and revisiting it, you know, every year, every couple months is really important as well. And an additional thing that LifeRock does and a, and a lot of funders do as well, it's, it's really and this is even in the translational space. We don't take a cut of the IP. The IP, we want to ensure that it really is as pure as it can be unencumbered so that when it gets to the next inflection point, it's as attractive as possible because it is going to have to secure subsequent funding or investment. And it's it's no one, you know, it's that's the main value and that's the main way of actually getting an innovation to to the patient. There are other routes, but it's more challenging. IP, if there is IP there, it should be valued. But, you know, by having slicing and dissecting, as you mentioned, stacking, it's, it's, it becomes so complicated that it can be off-putting and sometimes it can prevent investment of something that really should have been supported to move forward. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to go back, Angie, and talk about something that I alluded to before, and it's something that you and I are very passionate about, and that's... Um, equity, diversity, and inclusion in tech transfer. How does fostering a diverse and inclusive environment contribute to the advancement of advanced therapies? And what steps are you taking to promote EDI within the sector? Yeah, this is, it's, as you know, it runs through my veins. In, and it's, it's, it's really, and particularly in the advanced therapy space, where there's still a lot to be done to ensure that everyone can have access to these these. Um, cures, potential cures. It is, you know, for me, it's ensuring that all activities really ensure that everyone has access. So with ED and I, even from a skills perspective, those that I train, um, the two fellowship programs that I direct, it's it's ensuring that they understand really what does it mean having an inclusive team. There's a real body of evidence showing that, you know, teams that are diverse, that welcome out of the box ideas and approaches, um, really out innovate any other type of team. But it's it's understanding what you do with these diverse ideas, how you how you use them to really direct I mean, anything moving forward. The advanced therapy space is long, expensive. And it's challenging. We need the best minds. So it means diverse teams feeding in to ensure that we can get these technologies moving forward. So it's really with the hubs, with the skills aspect, you know, it's it's really even any discussions that we have with regards to accessibility, it's ensuring that basically we have everyone taken into account. So clinical trials, we want to make sure that it's a diverse recruitment process. You know, you're ensuring that everyone is coming through. So the therapeutic that's there, it's going to be applicable to everyone, regardless of age, age, gender, ethnic background, socioeconomic back, um, background. It's it's really, we want everyone to have access to this, but it's, it's also ensuring that countries that do not have the deep pockets and the facilities, as you touched on before, somehow we're going to have to find a way 
that this can be these these treatments, these cures can be accessible to them. A lot of it is out of our control, but the thing is, what we can do is flag where we foresee issues, because there are bodies and agencies that deal with a lot of the pricing aspects. But what we can do is set it on the track so that they can do their job and in, and really they recognise where there are there are going to be issues and challenges. But it's it's I think unless we find ways to actually deal with these from now, it does mean that there are going to be potential cures sitting there that are not going to be accessible to everyone. And that's not just low middle income countries. We're talking about, you know, everywhere. The countries, the richer countries, we're going to have that is just not going to be accessible because, you know, the healthcare systems differ country to country, but also the pricing it's usually the companies that get technologies onto the market. And unfortunately, they need to have a return on investment. They've invested a huge amount to get the technologies there. And they need to, to be sustainable. So it's not only getting to the market, it's keeping them on the market. Yeah. And I think for some groups, too, it's making sure that you include diverse patients in your clinical trials as well, because that's another issue where, you know, different Groups of individuals will react differently to certain medications. And we don't know with these advanced therapies how different groups are going to respond. So I think that's another aspect of this as well as making sure clinical trials include diverse individuals. Yep, including women, different age groups in women as well, because we are more complex. Exactly. But um, it's also the race aspects. And I think no, um, COVID was one of the examples that we found out you know, some of the challenges ensuring that, you know, certain diagnostics were not applicable to every every race. Exactly. So that that's going to be another key to, to this technology, as well as it goes forward to these advanced therapies. And, you know, Angie, LifeArc has just played such an incredible role in identifying, cultivating and commercializing early stage healthcare technologies. Do you want to share with us some of the inspiring success stories or maybe notable achievements from your experience at LifeArc that you think exemplify the impact of these therapies? I've been very lucky at LifeArc, um, but also a lot of the success and the great work preceded me. So, you know, we know that there are, and it's, it's well known, there are five, I think it's five now um, products on the market that LifeArc played a key part. And this, you know, the returns on, on these products really allowed us to be independent. And that's that's well um, narrated. With my time that I've been at LifeArc, it is where I've seen initiatives that has really helped great research propel from being something that would just sit in the labs to really technologies that are moving ahead in 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 the clinic. One of the key things that I mentioned is um, one of our funds that we have, because I mentioned rare disease, and there's a mechanism that we use to actually fund um, rare disease projects. And most of these lend themselves to be in advanced therapies, although not all of them are. But the thing is, it is where this, this is really the philanthropic, the LifeArc Philanthropic Fund. It funds um, translational research that is beyond the proof of concept stage and most are heading towards preclinical. As I mentioned before, it's it's funding, it's a grant, so we don't take any um, IP or 
any share in any of the turns for the technology moving forward. But it supports these these technologies and we we like to address gaps. And before this fund was set up, we identified the fact that the rare disease space was a space that wasn't being supported. So since its launch in 2017, this fund um, has really supported devices, diagnostics, um, and anyone that could be impacted by any sort of technology that they have a rare indication. It's awarded 19.7 million to 45 research projects. through these projects, they address 33 different rare diseases. That's incredible. Diseases. That's incredible. And this is growing. So it's 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 something that, you know, I was there when it started and, and was lucky enough to feed into it. But also it's ongoing and I have a huge portfolio with a lot of these projects in there. COVID did set things back because obviously, although research continued, it delayed things. But we're seeing, you know, where these projects are coming through now and they are at the next inflection point. So, you know, we're seeing clinical trials without actually disclosing any confidential information. We're seeing clinical trials that have never been done before. So we first demand trials that are addressing rare indications, working closely with the regulators to work out the path to get to the patient. And then, with, as you know, in the rare disease space, the first-in-man trials are different for a lot of these indications. So it really is where you're dealing with real patients. But it's exciting to see where this leads. I think I couldn't not talk about highlights and, and not mention the, the innovation hubs, which is something that, again, I was lucky in my time at um, LifeArt to play a, a good part in when it was set up but also feeding in with regards to what the hubs can do because it's still early days, but also the skills aspect because the hubs not only were going to address or are going to address um, manufacturing at a small scale to ensure the researcher can develop the technology further. It's also one of the missions is to ensure that there is a pipeline of really skilled individuals who will help lift the advanced therapy space, as we touched on before. So with this, I think I'm really excited to see what the hubs are going to do. I mean, it's since their launch, it is where the three hubs, the three main hubs, you know, one in London, one in Sheffield, the University of Sheffield and NHSBT in Bristol. It is where they they started from different points. So you're talking about from going, you know, building infrastructure where others are expanding and then It's really now it's at the point where projects are going through the pipeline. We're seeing exactly how this is going to work. The wider network is feeding in. So it's not only just the hubs, it's the stakeholders within the space as well. And we're seeing we're going to see these projects come through and they will. These are projects that probably will would have never get up, got out the lab or would be sitting there for a manufacturing slot for a very long time. Um, wherever they could get one um, and also begging for funds because what we did do and what I had the pleasure of doing last year was launching a gene therapy innovation fund to support projects that will use the innovation hubs. So it was a way of really priming these the pathway for these projects to ensure that they can use these facilities. We know that funding is going to be an issue as I mentioned before it's one of the challenges but if we have the infrastructure, the skills, you know, the know-how and the will, I think 
we're halfway there for sure. Definitely. And I want you in that context to pull out your crystal ball because I want you to to look forward a little bit here, Angie. And in looking forward, what do you envision as the future opportunities in building global hubs for advanced therapies? How do you think we or what should we do to ensure that these hubs remain at the forefront of innovation and continue to push the boundaries of medical science? Yeah, I, I think what I'd like to see and my hope for the hubs is that the hubs continue and they grow. So it, it would be a much bigger set of, of, of actual hubs, but also the, the the hub network, which is wider, much wider, with all the stakeholders involved in there. With the innovation hubs at the moment, there are three. There are three main hubs. Um, they're strategically placed. They complement each other. But there's room for more. And I'd like to see where basically this model also could be used elsewhere. There's a lot of questions, you know, how did you get this off the ground? The fact that this is a partnership and it was an investment, you know, by LifeArc, you know, government agencies, but also um, the interest from others. I'd like to see this model expand more with what the hubs can do. I'd like to see where it's not just viral gene therapies, maybe expands more. The connections with also the clinical trial centers and all the entities, medical schools that can perform the clinical trials, that connection piece there. I think researchers, a lot of translational researchers will learn a lot by working with the innovation hubs, because when you're in the lab, it's very different. So the aspect of actually trans, really transferring your technology from lab scale and, and standard to whether good lab laboratory practice or GMP, it is it's it opens your eyes to what you need. The standardization there. So I think there's a nice skill piece there, but I think also that collaborative piece to work with the manufacturers in the sector with regards to the, the research to ensure that we deal with some of the challenges and everyone deals with them. I think working collectively, I think industry has the same challenges that academia has. And, you know, with academia, a lot of the time, that flexibility to really think beyond and explore I think that can add a lot because the thing is, yes, we have a lot of viral gene therapies. We have T-cell therapies and the like. But the thing is, they're not perfect. They're all not perfect. And a lot of work needs to go on. But that's not going to happen by one one entity or one sector. It's going to be working together. So I, I'm hoping the hubs will help move everything, the innovation around that. But also, I'd like to see where... There are multiple therapies that would have gone through the hubs, scaled up, and are getting to the patient much quicker. Absolutely. Fingers crossed on that. I know. It's exciting. It really it's is exciting. Really it's exciting. Almost makes me want to put on a lab coat and get back in there. <laughs> get back <laughs> in and do that work. Well, well, then we wouldn't have you to talk on the podcast with us and, and do all the things that you do for diversity, equity, inclusion. So as tempting as that might be, uh Uh, Hopefully you'll stay put. So, Angie, I wanted to ask you for any of our listeners who are aspiring to enter the field of advanced therapies and tech transfer, what advice would you have for them? I think they should ask questions. I think this is one of the first things and a lot don't do this or they ask very late in the day. 
ask questions. There are no silly questions. I think find out, explore. If you love science and you're passionate about science, but also having an impact on the patient, really making a difference, impacting humanity, then I think it is where this is the sector for you. If you if you're inquisitive, you're solution focused, you like working with others because you have to communicate really well across the sectors. Continuous learning. I love learning. It is where you have to. We're talking about the advanced therapy space and we're talking about technology transfer, which is the process in getting, you know, good research from bench to bedside. It, it is where you're going to have to keep up with everything. So I would say if you, if all that sounds attractive, get out there and really try and get whatever exposure, experience, training that you can. It's not easy. It's, and this is the reason why, you know, the two fellowship programs exist. The training you need to have. But the thing is, you don't need to have it all at one time. It is where it may be incremental. It may be that you get on a fellowship program, an internship, apprenticeship. It, it's really, but do explore routes into the actual sector because we need you. We need you whether you're in TT, whether you're in advanced therapy or you sit in between. It, the sector really needs people who are passionate about it and really will drive to move everything um, so that we have these cures. And it's, it's you know, you're, you're creating history. So get out there and do it. And you're willing to answer any questions anybody has for you. Absolutely. Do you know, I was just thinking, should I say that? <laughs> and then I thought, mm, but it's, I'm used to doing it. It's, it's really, I'm happy to speak to anyone who's interested in the sector, but also interested in ways to find out more, or they just want to have a conversation and explore the possibilities for them. It's, I think, you know, if I had that, it would have been different. But now there are people like myself who are happy to help others. So yeah, let's have a conversation. Well, Angie, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise and insights on building a global hub for advanced therapies. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Autumn on the Air with Lisa Mueller. Get social with us and share your thoughts. You can tweet us at AUTM or visit us online at AUTM.net. We'll be back next week on the air. Be sure to join us. New to tech transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for tech transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and a line on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.